as they customarily are at this time. They'll be up in the youth room. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our study of Luke's gospel. So the 21st chapter of Luke's narrative, the third book of the New Testament, if you will turn there and we'll begin our study there at verse 12. Luke chapter 21, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible. We want to make sure that you can read the text with us, study it with us. Luke chapter 21. As you're turning to Luke chapter 21, Jesus is given a teaching to his disciples, as you know, called the Olivet Discourse. As the disciples at the end of a long day, uh, the end of chapter 20, tells us that Jesus is up on the temple proper. And as he's crossing the temple courts, we know that one of the disciples say to Jesus, look at this beautiful temple, the beautiful stones, these huge stones. And of course, to remind you that the temple at that time was one of the wonders of the world as far as buildings. And as they would point that out, the beauty of the temple to Jesus, Jesus said that the time's going to come where the temple's going to be destroyed. And the disciples hearing that were absolutely shocked. They, they would leave the temple proper. They would walk across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And it is there that the disciples come to Jesus and they ask them, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? So we saw last week that Jesus began to talk to them as we opened up this teaching called the Olivet Discourse, that these signs that point to the return of Jesus Christ are likened to birth pangs. Those things such as deception, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines and pestilence and, and fearful signs in heaven and, and persecution as well. And the time will be that as those things take place, even as Jesus would say in Matthew's narrative of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark chapter 13, his recording of this teaching, that Jesus says these signs are the beginning of sorrows or literally birth pangs. And we discussed that in detail last time, these signs culminating in Revelation chapter 6 being more significant right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But as we come today to verse 12, and as we read through verse 24 of this discourse, Dr. Luke uniquely tells us of this portion of the Olivet Discourse that speaks specifically of what's going to take place up to including 70 AD. It's like Dr. Luke puts in this parenthesis or this, this paragraph here speaking about the days ahead that will lead up to 70 AD. And that is a date that I've mentioned several times already going through Luke's gospel and this teaching because that's when the temple in Jerusalem uh, was destroyed. Jerusalem itself, a beautiful city at this time, was destroyed as well by the Romans. Now remember, when Jesus told the disciples that not one stone is going to be left upon another, they thought... This has to be the end of the world. When this temple is destroyed, it has to be the end of the age and, and your return. So what and when will these things be is what they asked him first. That is the destruction of the temple. And Jesus is going to talk about that. In the verses following, when we get to verse 25 to verse 33 of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus once again talks about those signs that are signs that are pointing to that something's going to happen. It's leading to something in this world. 
And that is the birth pangs that's going to bring uh, as the labor pains continue to get more frequent and more intense as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ to where a kingdom, an eternal kingdom is going to be birthed, the kingdom of God. So let's look at this in verse 12 as we read once again. But Jesus says to them, before all these things, what things? That was talked about, we covered last week in verses 8 through 11. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So Jesus here is, he begins to continue to talk to these disciples. And verse 12, as I mentioned last week, does have a time limit on it. Remember, Luke is uniquely talking about this time from when Jesus is speaking to 70 AD, that it has a time limit on it in that the synagogues only had power to persecute until 70 AD. It would be after 70 AD, certainly the Romans, that is the Roman government, would continue that persecution against the Christians well after 70 AD. But this is a picture of what we read about as you go to the book of Acts. You see in the book of Acts, for example, in chapter 4, that the apostles are brought before the religious council there in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. Uh, You see Stephen before the Sanhedrin, then stoned to death. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, he would stand before governors and even the emperor of Rome in 62 AD. And Jesus is saying to them, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be delivered to the synagogues and prisons, kings and rulers, for my namesake. But remember that it's going to give you an opportunity to give your testimony. And when I read this, and when we read it, you probably think back to, for example, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who stood before the Sanhedrin Council, that Jewish Supreme Court, persecuted by the Jews, run out of synagogues. He stood before rulers and kings. He would be faithful in giving the testimony of Jesus Christ as he stood before Felix and Festus, two governors of Judea. King Agrippa, there in the amphitheater in Caesarea, as he gave his testimony, and the emperor himself. So Jesus is telling them, know what you are headed for in the days ahead. He would say to them in the next night, as John chapter 15, that upper room discourse, tells us as Jesus is with his disciples for the last time before he goes to the cross, that he tells them that the world's going to hate you. And the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. And you're not of this world. I think that we as Christians, listen, we need to get settled in our hearts that when you do come to faith in Jesus Christ, that those of the world are not going to applaud you. That they're going to come against you. And the world is getting more hostile towards Christians in these days that we're in than ever before, it seems like. Persecution has always been a part of the church. But we see that even in our own culture, in our own nation, that there is a turning away from the Lord and turning against Christians. And Jesus continues talking to them in verse 14. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or to resist. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to come up with some kind of outline. God's anointing is going to be on you. And we know, again, as we look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, that Peter stood up 
And he preached very powerfully, persuasively to where 3,000 got saved. It would be a short time later that he, as him and John were going to the temple, and there was that man begging for alms. He, he was lame, and we know that they brought healing to him. And the people marveled. So as the crowds gathered, Peter again began to preach to the people, and 2,000 more got saved. And in Acts chapter 4, what you see is the religious leaders are so upset of all of a sudden the church is growing. And the name of Jesus Christ is being preached there at the temple. So they arrest the apostles. And as they do, they ask them, by what uh, power and by what name have you done this? And it tells us in Acts chapter 4 that Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, began to address the rulers of Israel. And he would say to them, let it be known to you and all uh, of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands you before you healed. And this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now remember that as Peter is quoting from Psalm 118, that he had heard Jesus say that and quote that to the religious leaders Just, uh, you know, a couple weeks before that, as Jesus would say that, as we saw in Luke chapter 20, addressing the religious leaders, I'm the chief cornerstone. You've rejected me. And there is salvation none in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. So Peter here, he would address them very boldly. And what is interesting, because it was just before that, when they arrested Jesus and brought him to Caiaphas' house, what happened to Peter? Even though he was determined that he was going to never deny the Lord, he said, I'll never deny you, I'll never leave you. And he denied the Lord three times in the rooster crowed. And here it is, just over 40 days later, that we see that here's Peter and and, uh, the day of Pentecost preaching. And then a short time after that, he's standing and preaching boldly and with courage and, and persuasively to those religious leaders. They don't know how to answer the apostles except to intimidate them and threaten them and persecute them. And the very things that Jesus said would happen did happen. And listen, it's going to happen to you. And it's going to happen to me. And it's going to happen to this church. And there are those who will hate you because they hate Jesus. And they will come after you. And I think that a lot of us that we've experienced that to some degree or another, it may come from family members, people at work, maybe in the classroom, maybe, you know, in your neighborhood. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to be they're, you know, just willing to give a testimony of Jesus Christ. I love what Paul writes in the, you know, book of Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's writing to them of when he came to them. And Paul writes this. I'll read it to you. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with the excellence of speech or the wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 
that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Paul, as he says, when I came to you in Corinth, I came in fear and trembling and and, in much weakness. He was one beat up missionary. And he comes and he says, I didn't come in the wisdom of man and in the power of man, but I came in the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. I came with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And listen, that as you stand before those, perhaps it's a boss or maybe a family member or maybe old friends or the guys at work and you're there standing and trembling and weakness and fear, that as you rely on the Lord, he desires to give you the strength and the courage to give a testimony of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the Lord wants to use you in that way in the day in which we are living in. So Jesus continuing to to address these uh, disciples here on the mount called Olivet. In verse 16, you will be betrayed, he says, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost, and by your patience possess your souls." And so there are those, many that will turn against you, hated by all for my name's sake. And there will be relatives, those who are close to you, and they're going to turn on you. They're going to be angry at you. They're going to hate you. Some of you are going to be put to death. Matter of fact, the disciples that are with Jesus, every single one of them would be put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Judas, of course, Iscariot was an exception of that. And then also we know that John the Apostle, who is believed by historians, would die a normal death at the end of the first century. But all the rest of the guys were martyred, put to death, for going out and preaching the gospel to the known world. And Jesus here says that you're going to have those even close to you that are going to come against you. And I think that, again, that most of us, if not all of us, to one degree or another, have had that happen to us. Paul said in the last days it will be perilous times. Remember that he's writing to Timothy. And he says to Timothy that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not that you might suffer persecution, but you will. So as you stand for the Lord and as you give the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that there are going to be those that will come against you and I. And, and that's why, folks, that is so important again, that as I emphasized on Wednesday night, what is the church to be about? They continue steadfastly, not only in the word of God and in prayer and breaking bread, but in koinonia, in fellowship. We need each other. This needs to be a place that you can come to and be encouraged and blessed and prayed for and built up. Because the world isn't going to do that for you. But this needs to be a place where we can just encourage one another and love one another in the body of Christ, especially in the day in which we're living in. And Jesus saying, remember that verse 18, not a hair of your head shall be lost. Jesus has given us an eternal perspective here. You're going to stand before the Lord in glory and not a hair of your head is going to be lost. Matter of fact, in the resurrection, I know when I get my new resurrected body, then I'll have more hair. So I'm excited about that. I'm sure I will. But then that leads to verse 19, by your patience, possess your souls. That word patient in the Greek speaks of, you know, long endurance. We endure even in a persecution because we know that Jesus is coming back. We have the hope of eternal life. 
He's going to establish his kingdom that's going to be established, you know, and we're going to be ones that rule and reign with him in a kingdom that will last forever. And Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but not the soul, but you fear God because he's the one that delivers us. And then in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now, keep in mind that when they asked Jesus, when are these things going to happen? The magnificent temple being destroyed. Jesus is talking about that in verses 20 through 24. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its destruction is near in verse 21. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Verse 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Interesting. Now, this is where we got to put our thinking caps on a little bit. In Matthew's and Mark's narrative of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is recorded in saying something similar about when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet, then get off your rooftops. Don't stay in your homes. Flee Judea. You know, pray that it, that it isn't on the Sabbath. Woe to nursing mothers. But as we consider what Matthew and Mark record, the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet, keep in mind that has not been fulfilled yet. That's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period. So remember, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as we saw in chapter 19 of Luke, that here are the religious leaders. The people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To the son of David, to the king of Israel, they are ascribing to him the title Messiah. And as the religious leaders heard that, they said, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, if they are quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. And then he would weep over Jerusalem. He said, you didn't know the time, the day of your visitation. And we went back to not only was that a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, but Daniel chapter 9. Now listen. The last four verses of Daniel chapter 9 are very important to understand because that gives us the outline to the end time scenario. Everything that happens in the end times has to fit into that outline in that, that Daniel was told by the angel Gabriel that there are 70 periods of seven years that are determined for your people, Daniel, that is the Jews, and for your holy city, that's Jerusalem. And when the command comes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming to Messiah the Prince is going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks or a period of 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven years. That's what the term week is. It's a period of seven years. Then Messiah the Prince is going to come. And we talked about how that was fulfilled when Jesus got on a donkey, rode down the Mount of Olives into the city, And they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If I tell these disciples to be quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. Because this is the day of your visitation. 
But it was Daniel that was told that there are 70 periods of seven years or 70 weeks that are determined for your people and your holy city. So there's still a one-week period, a seven-year period, where it's going to be the focus on Israel and on Jerusalem. And Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 speaks about that, that that's when the Antichrist will come on the scene. He's going to make a peace treaty with Israel, a covenant with them, that probably is going to allow them to rebuild their temple. And then in the middle of the week, we see that Daniel speaks about the abomination of desolation. The sacrifices and offerings are going to come to an end. We know that as we match that up with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as we look at the book of Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, that the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. There's no temple right now, but they're preparing to build the temple. And as he goes into the rebuilt temple, he will set up an image to himself. He will claim himself as God to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. He will desecrate the temple. At that time, he's going to tell the world that you need to worship me. He's under the direct influence of Satan. And what's something that Satan has always wanted? To be worshipped, right? We know that from the book of Isaiah. So he's going to proclaim himself as God. And that's the abomination of desolation. Then he's going to turn and very heavily persecute the Christians at that, and the Jews at that time. That's why Jesus said when it comes to the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet, then you need to flee at that time. Here he's speaking about the time when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus reflects that some of the same things to be warned about in the very troubling time of the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see the armies, then know that desolation of Jerusalem is near. He doesn't say the abomination of desolation, which is something completely different. Now, there are those who will come along and say, oh, the abomination of desolation happened in 70 AD. When Titus came in to Jerusalem, he did not desecrate the temple. He destroyed the temple. So again, two distinct events that are talked about. The abomination of desolation is still to be fulfilled in the future, in the middle of the tribulation period. All right? So he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's already wept over the city prior to this. And this is how it went down. After the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, after a few years, Claudius the emperor comes to power. He begins to persecute the Jews heavily. He kicks them out of Rome. We know that from Acts chapter 18, verse 2, when Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey, that he met a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They were kicked out of Rome because of Claudius, who made that decree that all the Jews need to leave Rome. They hear the gospel from Paul the apostle. They get saved. They become faithful servants and ministers of the gospel, ministering with Paul after that, a very special couple. Well, after Claudius becomes, you know, after his death, then Caesar Nero becomes the emperor. And Caesar Nero continued that persecution of the Jews. And in 66 AD, the Jews begin to rebel in Jerusalem and in Israel. So what Nero does is he sends his general, Vespasian, to Jerusalem to take control. Caesar Nero then, also during that time, would begin to persecute the Christians. And what is interesting is, is that Paul the Apostle, as you in the book of Acts, he's on a boat headed to Rome, right? As he goes to Rome, he's walking into the city. That's where the book of Acts ends. 
But we also know that Paul would be under house arrest. He went through that series of of trials that starts in Acts chapter 20 to the end of the book. He, being a Roman citizen, appeals to Rome. They said, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. He goes to Rome. He's under house arrest where he writes the prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and Philippians. It is believed that Paul at that time then would face Caesar Nero and give his testimony to him. Now, the Bible doesn't record the time that Paul stood before Caesar Nero. But we do know from Acts chapter 27, verse 24, that Paul, as he's on his way to Rome, that he is told by the Lord, you must be brought before Caesar. So he would be brought before Caesar Nero. You can be certain that he witnessed to Caesar Nero because Paul witnessed to everybody. And we can be certain that Caesar Nero rejected that witness. Because here's what happens. Right after Paul is released, it would be recorded in the Roman court there about the trial. Paul is released. Nero begins to go insane. And he begins to persecute the Christians. He burnt down Rome, you know, from your high school history class. And he played the fiddle as Rome burnt. He would turn on the Christians, and and that's where they began to really become persecuted by Nero and by Rome and by others. And it is in 67 AD that it is Nero that had Peter arrested and Paul arrested, and then they would be put to death. Paul would be beheaded. It would be Peter that was crucified upside down. There is some church tradition that tells us that Paul and Peter were killed on the same day. We don't know for sure. Caesar Nero commits suicide right after he puts Peter and Paul to death. Vespasian is summoned back to Rome, and many of the Roman troops remain in the area. In the following year, in 68 AD, there are four emperors assassinated. So the Roman Senate, in order to uh, restore order, they take Vespasian and they make him the emperor in 69 AD. The new emperor then sends his son, Titus, Titus Vespasian to Jerusalem in the spring of 70 AD. Titus comes with the 5th and the 10th and the 12th and the 15th Roman legions, a huge army. He surrounds the city, and a siege of the city begins. It starts in the spring, in April of 70 AD, and lasts until August, 143 days. Now, when they began that siege in April, many of the worshipers that had come to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were trapped in the city. Titus built an embankment around the city. He broke through the city walls. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. Because of the Passover crowds that were trapped in the city all summer long, no food was getting in, and many were starving to death. And they were stacking the bodies in the street like cordwood. Nearly 100,000 Jews were taken captive back to Rome. Some of them fed to the lions in the arenas. The rest of them ended up in slavery. They were dispersed throughout all the nations, as verse 24 tells us would happen. And what happened to the rest of the Jews that were in the land? They were driven out and dispersed throughout the world. But here's something very interesting as well. Eusebius, the early church father, He records that the Christians at that time, remembering the words of Jesus, remembering what he had to say, that when you see the army surround Jerusalem, then you need to get out. 
And remembering those words, it tells us that the Christians in Jerusalem escaped. And they went over to Perea on the east side of the Jordan River to a place called Pella. And that's where they stayed. Pella was one of the cities of the Decapolis. I've been there in Jordan where you can walk through the ruins. Because they remembered what Jesus said. They took heed. They, they got out of there and listened. Jesus is telling us something very important in this discourse. That all of this that is happening... And then next week when we go back to the signs that he picks up in verse 25, that this, this paragraph is over, the signs of the perplexity of nations and, and signs in the heavens and also at the roaring of the seas and then the budding of the fig tree. It's all leading to something. And then he's going to say, take heed to yourselves that your hearts don't get weighed down. That all of a sudden that day comes upon you unexpectedly. And it comes as a snare on those who dwell on the face of the earth. You need to watch, therefore, and pray always. And you see, those are the things that we need to take to heart even today. Because everything that is happening today, as we see wars and rumors of war, even as we wake up this morning and we see that the tension with North Korea has you know, risen once again as the dictator of North Korea says that he now has a hydrogen bomb and he can put it on an ICBM and he's beginning to threaten Guam once again and you begin to wonder you know, what's going to happen. Are we, could it be that we're on the verge of a nuclear war with North Korea? As we see that another hurricane is headed towards you know the Western Hemisphere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, where is it going to go? We pray that it goes out into the Atlantic up north, but we've already seen the devastating effects of Hurricane Harvey that dumped more water. That system dumped more water than any other hurricane that has come through in the history they've been able to record that. Over 50 inches of rain in some parts of, of Houston. That's about three and a half years of moisture that we get here in Colorado. And we look at these things, and Jesus said these are signs. They're like birth pangs. They're going to happen more frequently and in intensity, and it's all leading to the birth of the kingdom of God that's going to come. So we need to watch and pay attention and make sure that we're not falling asleep. So the Christians at that time, they remembered the words of Jesus and were able to escape that time. The temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, in the Jewish calendar, that it was the same day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple in 586 BC. History also tells us when Titus broke through the city walls, that he gave the command to his troops not to destroy the beautiful temple, but it ended up on fire, and the gold that overlaid the temple began to melt because the fire was so intense, it began to run between the cracks of the stones. And so what did the Romans do? They tore the temple apart stone by stone to get to the gold, and they threw it over the Temple Mount area down into the Terrapin Valley. You can see some of the ruins of it even today. Verse 24, I want to draw attention. It will be done in a few minutes. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So you ask, what are the time of the Gentiles? We need to understand this. 
that the time of the Gentiles would actually begin in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Three waves of captivity. 605 B.C., Daniel's taken off into captivity. 597 B.C., Ezekiel's taken off into captivity. And then in 586 B.C., the temple, Solomon's temple, is destroyed. The time of the Gentiles, you will find the outline there given in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is called the foundation of end-time prophecy by some scholars. And the Gentile nations have ruled over Jerusalem ever since the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greeks, and then the Romans in Jesus' day. After the Romans came the Arabs, and then came the Crusaders, and then Turkey, and then Great Britain would come. Until they became a nation in 1948, at that time Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, was Jordan. And you can go to Jerusalem today and they'll show you the street. Matter of fact, where we stayed last time in February, our hotel was only a couple hundred feet away from where the border was. And in East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was, where the temple stood in the Mount of Olives, that was Jordan. And then the west side of Jerusalem was Israel. And then in the Six-Day War, it was the Israeli troops that took East Jerusalem. Well, what ended up happening is that the heart of East Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, still remained under Muslim control. And you have the nations of the world that are still telling Israel what to do. So you have the times of the Gentiles all the way from Babylon to the tribulation period. Now, there are some scholars that believe that when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that that ends the times of the Gentiles, but there are many that believe that continues through the tribulation period to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why that I have a tendency to believe that because the Bible says in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, I'll read it to you. This is the middle of the tribulation period. But John was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So what Revelation chapter 11 is telling us is that Jerusalem, from even that time in the middle of tribulation, the holy city, that is Jerusalem, is tread and given to the Gentiles until the return of Jesus Christ in the tribulation period. That's the time of the Gentiles. Now, it's important to understand that Romans chapter 11 tells us. As Paul, he, he's talking about his countrymen. He says, has God forsaken Israel? Has God cast away his people? He says, certainly not. And he goes into depth about how God still is using Israel, has a plan for Israel. And don't you Christians become haughty because you've been grafted into the natural olive tree. And you have been benefited and blessed by them. And then in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, Paul writes that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not the time of the Gentiles. And sometimes Bible teachers, I think, get those two terms mixed up. But the fullness of the Gentiles and the time of the Gentiles, they're two very distinct things. The fullness of the Gentiles speaks of the church and Gentiles being saved. The time of the Gentiles is the repression of Jerusalem from the time of Nebuchadnezzar up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles, Roman chapter 11, 
goes from the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church. You say, so what? Well, this is what I want to say. There's going to be a time when there's one last Gentile that's going to be saved. And then the Lord's going to say, that's it. I'm going to take the church home. And the rapture of the church. So if you're here and you're not saved, will you please get saved? Because maybe you're that last Gentile and you'll get saved and then we can go home. But seriously, I do want to say this. That if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, this world is not where it's at. And this world is going to come to a drastic end. It is not getting brighter and rosier and more cheery. It's going to get worse. And it's going to culminate to where Jesus Christ is going to come back. He is your hope. And he came the first time to die for your sins. Because he loves you. And we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to this world to die for you, the Son of God, and he rose again, and he conquered sin and death, and no one else did that for you. Everybody else that claimed to be a religious leader is still in the grave. Only Jesus rose from the grave. And he says, come. And you may have everything that you think you need. You have your home. Life looks good. You know, you, know, you have money in the bank. And you think, I have everything. You have nothing until you come and receive Jesus Christ into your life. And he gives you a new heart. And you have salvation and right relationship with the Father. You have the hope of heaven. And you're going to belong to a kingdom that's going to be established. And all these things that Jesus said is going to happen will come to pass. We've talked about how this book dares to give predictive prophecy to us in every dot and tittle of it is going to be fulfilled. All the prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming, fulfilled to the letter, and you can be sure that all the prophecies about his second coming is going to be fulfilled as well. He is your hope. He's the only hope that any of us have. There's no other name under heaven in which a man or a woman must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So the Jews are scattered throughout the nations, maintaining their identity, becoming a nation once again. They begin to trickle back into the land. We don't have time to go into all the history. They begin to trickle back in the 1880s. And then after World War II, after you know, the, the atrocities of the Holocaust, out of the ashes comes the beauty, as Isaiah writes. They become a nation in 1948. Listen, the church before that, for 2,000 years, they wonder what's going to happen. They're out of the land. And I believe that some of the church leaders like Calvin and them that adopted replacement theology, they didn't have an answer for what was going to happen with Israel. So the church must be spiritual Israel. But in 1948, it was fulfilled just as the prophecies of the Old Testament said that after 2,000 years, here is the Jews back in their original homeland that had never been heard of ever before, of a group of people that maintained their identity for 2,000 years without their homeland. And they're brought back into the land, and you and I have had a front row seat to that, to the super sign, as we talk about signs, and that is the budding of the fig tree, the nation of Israel becoming once again a nation as God has been gathering the Jews back into the land. Matter of fact, I believe it's in 2009, the, 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 
dispersa of the Jews. There have been more Jews outside of Israel in different countries than in Israel till 2009. Now Israel has the highest concentration of Jews as they've been coming in from all over the world than any other nation. 5.6 million Jews in 2009 in Israel, 5.4 million in the United States. Absolutely amazing. And you and I have a front row seat to it. To see these things like Ezekiel 37 come to pass, the valley of the dry bones, these bones that are, are scattered, can these bones be made to live? You know, Lord, Ezekiel said, and the bones come together and, and they're skeletons. And then can these bones be made to live? You tell me, Lord, and all of a sudden the muscles and the tissue and the skin comes on and it's corpse and then the Lord breathes life into them. And it speaks about how a nation was dead, is alive. We're seeing Ezekiel 36 come to pass as the land is blossoming once again. When the Turks ruled over Israel, they taxed the people on how many trees that they had. So what did everybody do? They went out and cut down their trees. And Mark Twain even writes about how he came to Israel, how it was a desert. It was a wasteland. Who would want to even live here? There were swamps in the northern part of the country. And now when you go to Israel, what they have done is absolutely amazing. Fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, 37. We know that many of the prophecies of the last days cannot come to pass unless Israel is a nation once again. The abomination of desolation. The Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. Chapter 9, verse 27 of Daniel. We know that their temple is going to be rebuilt. The Jews have to be back into the land. That all these things are not going to come to, to pass until the Lord, first of all, brought them back into the land. And that was the super sign that end time clock started. And that Jerusalem's going to be a cup of trembling to all the nations. And Christians cannot ignore the fact that the Lord has kept his promise and bring them back into the land. And Amos says, when they come back from all the nations, they're not going to be plucked out again. So God has a plan for the church. God has a plan for Israel. And we'll talk more about that as we continue on. But here we'll see that Luke is going to pick it up, the signs once again. It's all leading to the coming of the Lord. It's all leading to where things are going to be wrapped up. We're rushing towards eternity. So keep watching, keep looking, occupy till he comes. we got work to do. And to keep being a testimony of Jesus Christ to others. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, just incredible words of Jesus that I pray stirs our hearts. And, Lord, that we realize that, that your son is going to come back as he promised. But he came the first time to die for our sins to provide the greatest need that any man or any woman has, and that is to be forgiven, to surrender their lives to the Savior of the world. There is none other. Have you done that? And if you're here and you've never done that, we want to give you the invitation to call upon the name of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is an eternity. There is an eternity separated from God because of those who rejected Jesus Christ. 
in an eternity with God, those who have accepted him as Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation. It's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. This world's going to come to an end. But God's kingdom lasts forever. Will you turn to him? Call upon him? You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come to you, and I confess that I'm a sinner, and I ask that you would forgive me. I believe you rose from the grave. You're speaking to my heart. And I now open up my heart to you and ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me. Forgive me. And I want to know you. I want to walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, as Pastor John will come up front as we close the service, you can come up, tell me your decision you made. You can tell me at the door. But we want to encourage you and bless you. And now as we get ready to come to the communion table, that we, as we hold the elements in our hands, the communion tables for the believer who remembers this new covenant that we belong to, that it would be just a time of worship and reflection upon a so great a salvation that we have in Jesus' name.